0: I just want to introduce myself, I'm Pastor Sandra, I have one dog, three kids, and one husband who is sitting right in front with Pastor Matt here. So usually I'm stationed at Woodlands, and I want to share with you a little bit more about my life because I don't think you guys get to see me very often. And so I want to share with you a little bit, a little bit about my childhood and about the existential crisis I had when I was 10 years old. So. My first existential crisis happened when I was 10, and it came in the form of a cartoon, an 80s cartoon called Robotech. And for those of you who know what it is, it reveals your age. And this cartoon, Robotech, it deals with multiple intergalactic enemies that are seeking to destroy Earth. And then you ask, it's a cartoon, why on Earth do you have an existential crisis? So because I was an introverted preteen, had too much time on my hands, too many thoughts swimming in my head, It was the first time that I considered the possibility that maybe the world I'm living in is an illusion, and we're just all minute puppets being controlled by intergalactic aliens living in a biosphere bubble. Okay, I've always been a little bit weird, okay? I've always been a little bit weird. And my husband agrees with me, that was his loudest uh aha coming from the front. And I probably read far too much science fiction as a kid. But you know, we all have big questions about life. And maybe your questions are not as weird as mine, but whether you are 10 or whether you're 80, you all have big questions. Like, what is the meaning of life? What am I doing here? What am I supposed to be doing here? Who am I? How do I know what's true? And for the last couple of weeks, we have been asking those questions. And today we ask the big question of origin and design. Who am I? Where do I come from? So because I need some artificial intelligence to add to my own, I asked ChatGPT for some answers, Okay, So I typed in to ChatGPT, where do I come from? And this was its reply. As an AI language model, I don't have access to personal information such as identity to know where you come from. Okay, that's very helpful. Let's try again. That's not the right way to ask ChatGPT a question. So I asked. What is the answer to the philosophical question, where do human beings come from? And then ChatGPT replies The question of where human beings come from is a complex and multifaceted one that's been explored by many philosophers, scientists, and theologians throughout history. The answer to this question can vary depending on one's perspective and beliefs. So let me tell you what ChatGPT is trying to say. In summary, it's saying it depends. Okay, that's pretty much a non-answer, but the answer is, it depends. Because it depends on whether you, how you approach it. Do you approach it through the scientific method, or do you approach it through a more philosophical and theological approach? And then how do you rationalise the apparent contradictions between those approaches? But you see, when we consider the question of origins, we must first settle what is even a deeper and more fundamental question. And the deeper and the more fundamental question is, what is ultimate reality? So let me explain what I mean. So is there a God who is ultimate reality, and then he created the universe? Or the other option is, is the universe ultimate reality? And somehow, with the rest of it just came to be, and we are that ultimate reality. So broadly speaking, these are the only two options. The options is either the universe is ultimate reality or God is ultimate reality and then He created the universe. You know, it actually requires faith to believe in either of these two options, whether the universe is ultimate reality or God is ultimate reality, because no one has been able to definitively prove yet by the scientific method to either of these options. In a way, as Christians, let's also not use the Bible to prove the existence of God with the Bible because that's not what the Bible is meant to do. Because the Bible starts from a very different position, it doesn't feel the need to prove God's existence at all. And it just starts with the assertion, when at first God, that is the literal start of Genesis in the Hebrew. When at first God and the rest of the Bible reveals who this God is to us, when Moses asked God, what is your name? And God's reply to him was, I am who I am. I just am. I exist. So it starts from a place of confidence, absolute confidence, and I think God is very confident that he exists. So from our perspective, why then do I think that the biblical worldview is far more compelling and far more coherent than the alternative? Because I feel that life is far too complex to be reduced to mere matter. Because unlike human beings, humans, as we exist in this world, as we experience life, we think about big questions. My dog doesn't think about big questions. Animals don't think about big questions. He doesn't think, my little toy poodle doesn't go, who am I? Where do I come from? All he thinks is about when is my next meal and when is my human coming home, right? Unlike animals, we need compelling answers to the big questions of life and the entirety of the biblical worldview where God is ultimate reality, whether he is creator, saviour, and lord, and the entire biblical worldview provides a coherent and compelling answer to the deepest questions of my heart. It provides longing, meaning in a way that none of the others can. And without a loving creator God that it hinges on, without a loving creator God as a reference point, the rest of the big questions of identity, significance, truth, meaning, destiny, it cannot quite hang together. So this is our starting point as we think about origin and design, that a loving creator God would choose to create us and then reveal himself to us through the Bible, the word of God, which Pastor David reminded us last week. The word of God is true, real and good. So this is our origin. So today, as we look at Psalm 8, we're going to move on from looking at the Creator to looking at creation, us. We are created for worship and we are entrusted with purpose. And we're now going to go into Psalm 8, so I'm going to invite you all to stand with me even as we read God's Word aloud today. Turn with me in your Bibles to... Psalm 8 in the ESV, and let's read it out together, or if you can see it on the screen, please read it out aloud with me. Let's start. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And I look in your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. As we begin, let's pray. Our eternal God, our loving Heavenly Father, as we grapple with your word today, help us to see how good and great you are. Would you bring us back to a place of deep reverence and incredible awe of who you are as our loving and majestic creator. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So today, I've talked about the Creator, and now let's talk about creation. And Psalm 8 really echoes the creation account in Genesis. So in Genesis 1 and 2, it tells us that in the beginning, God created the world. And it includes the cosmos, the environmental ecosystem that we live in, the animals that populate it, and then it tells us that God created humanity. So Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28 says, Then God said, let's make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is what God has created. The cosmos, the environment, the animals that populated, and he created man. So creation has a fundamental relationship with its creator, It is the most fundamental basis of any relationship because without the Creator, we would not exist. That's how fundamental the relationship is. So within God's creation, we also have an interdependent relationship with all that God has created, the environmental ecosystem that we are a part of. But humanity has a privileged position. We can relate in a profoundly different way to God because God has made us in our image and His likeness. So as humans created by God, fundamentally we have this relationship with Him. And as God's creation, because of this fundamental relationship, we as humans are compelled to respond to God in a particular way. And this particular way is to praise and to worship Him. So Psalm 8 gives us some clues as to why we are created for worship, why we are compelled to worship Him. Psalm 8 is the first psalm, praise psalm in the Psalter. Okay, and there's, it, there's some significance in that. The first praise psalm in the entire book of Psalms is a creation psalm. And it's very significant that the first praise psalm begins with its praise, acknowledging God as creator. You know, the psalm begins and ends with worship in verse 1 and in verse 9. It's what you call an envelope structure. And then the body of the psalm is about humanity's place in God's creation. And then God's name is glorified in all of creation. So when you look at all of these observations from the psalm, what implications can you draw? For me, the biggest implication I take away from it is that when we relate to God as creator, the rightful response is praise and worship. We are created for worship. The Westminster Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? And the man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Our chief end is to worship and glorify God because of our relationship, our very fundamental relationship as His creation. But it is not an onerous and oppressive relationship like between a master and a subject. We are to worship Him and we are to enjoy Him. There is fullness of life, fullness of joy, fullness of abundance as we worship Him. But you know, there are even more reasons to praise and worship God. Inherently, God is already worthy of worship. But in this psalm, it details for us the things that God does for us. And that gives us even more reason to worship Him. So let's look through some of these things. In verse 2, it says that out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. Another word for strength is actually the word fortress. And it talks of God's protection. Verse 4, you are mindful of Him. That's God's remembrance of us. God remembers us. Verse 4, again, you care for Him. That speaks of God's love and that speaks of God's care. Verse 5, you crown Him. That means that God gives us honour. And verse 6, you have given Him dominion over all the things of creation. And that's how God has given us and entrusted us with esteem and a sacred responsibility. So when you look at all of these things, there are even more reasons to worship God. By virtue of his godness, God is already inherently worthy of worship. But not only that, he chooses to protect us, he chooses to care for us, he chooses to love us, he chooses to honour us. There's even more reasons to worship him. And we are created to worship this God. And it's in returning to this fundamental, loving relationship with our Creator that we enjoy the fullness of life that we were designed for. But problem. There's always a problem. What is the problem? What prevents us from living in the way that we were designed to? What prevents us from living up to what we were created to? What prevents us from glorifying God as we should? I think the problem is this. I think the problem is that we as humans confuse being made in the image of God as the same as to be made to be God. When we think being made in the image of God is the same as being made to be God, and this is the basic sin problem. Instead of worshipping him as God, we try to be like God. And all of you very tired Singaporeans tell me, Pastor, I barely have enough energy to be human. Why are you telling me that I try to be God? Okay, how on earth do I try to be like God? Let me suggest one way in which humans, us, try to be like God when we don't accept that we are humans with God-ordained limits and live within those limits. Because by virtue of being created, we have limits. Only God is limitless. You know when you were born, a nurse came, took you, a newborn, put you on the weighing scale and weighed you, 3 kg, 4 kg, 5 kg, poor mother if you were 5 kg, or they measured your length, 49 cm, 52 cm by virtue of the fact that you can be measured, it means that you have limits. Only God is limitless, but we have limits. But how do we as human beings also try to be limitless like Him? So Jen Wilkin, a Bible teacher, tells us about being rivals to God in her very good book, A Nun Like Him. And let me read to you what it says. Human beings created to bear the image of God instead aspire to become like God. Designed to reflect His glory, we choose instead to rival. We do so by reaching for those attributes that are true only of God, those suited only to a limitless being. Rather than worship and trust in the omniscience of God, we desire to all-knowing ourselves. Rather than celebrate and revere His omnipotence, we seek ultimate power in our own spheres of influence. So this is what it means when we try to be like God, when we try to rival His limitlessness, when we chase after ultimate power, when we chase after ultimate knowledge, when we chase after more and more and more. So what is one area, one very practical area in our lives that we chase after more and more and more? And for Singaporeans, the answer is very obvious, work. We are working harder than ever before, the pay seems more punishing, the pressure seems more relentless, and the entire culture seems to be about doing more, achieving more, working more. So the term for it is hustle culture, the relentless pursuit of more. So hustle culture in a narrative promotes the idea there's always more to strive for, more money to make, a bigger promotion, a bigger title, a higher ceiling that you need to smash. And whatever it takes to achieve it, it's worth it. That's what hustle culture Tells us. And even though we kind of don't really want to be in it, we kind of like get sucked into it, and we feel compelled to move in those directions because the culture seems to be moving in that same direction. But we have to ask ourselves, is it really, really worth it? Because we pay for it. We pay for it in terms of our mental health. We pay for it in terms of our emotional capacity. We pay for it in terms of our relationship with our friends, our family, and also our relationship with God. We try to have it all. We try to have it all, and we hope that we will be that one exception that manages to achieve the perfectly tuned balance. Why is there always a price to pay? Why is there always a price to pay when you chase after more and more? Because unlimited achievement, it runs counter to our fundamental makeup as limited human beings. So society also knows and reacts against this hustle culture. Deep down inside, we all know that it is kind of toxic and it's not sustainable. And so society also gives answers like work-life balance, work-life integration, I have no idea what work-life integration means, or quiet quitting, we just sit there and you do the bare minimum and hopes no one notices and you still receive your paycheck. May I suggest that if we truly want to deal with this problem, we have to deal with the root and not the symptom. Because the real antidote to hustle culture is to acknowledge that the relentless pursuit of more and more is at its heart an idol. It's an idol that rivals God. More pay, more security, more accolades, more prestige, more achievement, more financial rewards. More and more and more. And we feel driven towards this more more and more and more. So right now, I would just like to give us a little bit of time to ask God, what is one area of more and more that I'm struggling with? What is one area of more and more that I am personally struggling with and God is surfacing up right now? I'm just going to give us a few moments just to quietly reflect on that. Whatever the area of more and more is, whether it has to do with your children, whether it's to do with your career, whether it's to do with your pursuit for material security, whatever the area of more and more is, when we are able to identify the rivals in our hearts, when we're able to repent from them, you see, God frees us from their grip. Because the chase of more and more does have a grip over our souls. And when God frees us from that grip, it brings us to a place of freedom, of healing, of restedness. And then we can begin to make the good choices, the God choices that lead us to life and flourishing. Otherwise, we're not free to make those choices. We always feel compelled. We always feel driven. We're always flowing against the tide. But when we come to God and say, God, these are the things I struggle with. Please free me from it. I repent from them. And the freedom and the healing that we experience brings us to a place of restlessness where we can truly make free decisions about what is good and what is flourishing. But when we get caught up in them all, when we ignore God-ordained limits on us as human beings, and when we pursue relentlessly, we think that we're living life to the fullest, but actually we're living a life that is actually pretty dehumanising. We live a life that has lost a sense of vitality, a sense of purpose, a sense of significance, and a sense of fruitfulness and abundance because we were not designed to chase after more and more in this world. We were designed to worship. And that's what God created human beings for. God created us for worship. And friends, you know, within the worship that God has created us for, he has also entrusted with us a deep sense of sacred purpose. We are also entrusted with purpose. So just now, I talked about the fact that human beings and creation has a fundamental relationship with God, our Creator. We also have an interdependent relationship with all of creation. But we have a privileged position because we're made in the image of God. And because of that, God has given us a slightly different um, position and he has not only blessed us with a mandate to be fruitful and to flourish, but he has also entrusted with us a sacred responsibility to rule lovingly over the rest of creation. This is what Psalm 8 verse 5 to 8 says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So God has given us a sacred responsibility God has given us sacred responsibility and a sacred purpose to rule creation on His behalf. We are to represent God to rule creation. So as I say some of these words, some of you are wincing a little bit because instinctively we react to words like rule and dominion because to us, in our experience, those are not good words. Rule and dominion are not good words because when we think of these words, we think of power, authority, control, oppression. So how do we understand what it really means to rule? What does it mean to biblically rule? So what it means depends on what kind of rule. The what kind of rule and dominion makes all the difference. So this is what OT scholar Gordon Wenham says about rule and dominion. He says, Ancient Oriental kings were expected to be devoted to the welfare of their subjects, especially the poorest and weakest members of society. But upholding divine principles of law and justice, rulers promoted peace and prosperity for all their subjects. Similarly, mankind is here commissioned to rule nature as a benevolent king, acting as God's representative over them, and therefore treating them in the same way as God who created them. In other words, we are to treat creation like God treats creation, with loving authority. We are to represent God, to treat and rule creation with loving authority. I don't really have to tell you about the environmental crisis at hand. The stupendously hot weather in the last couple of weeks makes us long for the days in February. Do you remember the days in February where it was storming and flooding every single day? And then we complained, and now we complain, and we're not sure. Okay, we just complain all the time. So climate change is here, and climate change is real. But you know, our Christian response to climate change should not be from a place of fear and anxiety, but it should be from a place of sacred responsibility. So what does it look like for humans to do this? We don't just focus on the negative, don't just exploit nature um, for our own selfish use, but we need to focus on the positive, to actively work for its goodness, to actively work for its flourishing for all of creation because it's part of God's designed order. So, in our individual capacities, in our individual capacities, we can do our part to reduce, reuse, and recycle. I'm very good at that. At heart, I'm an auntie. I love to reuse containers. Okay, and we can also make more sustainable choices in how, in where we eat, what we buy, and where we go, so that we steward nature more responsibly. But at its heart, it takes more than just a change of habits, although it does require us to change our habits quite significantly. What is required is a change of mindset from using something to being sacredly responsible for it. So here's a soul-searching question. Do we treat God's nature as something to be used and abused? Do we treat God's nature as something to be used and abused? You know, not only does this apply to nature, it also applies to how we steward the rest of God's creation. And where's the rest of God's creation? People. The sacred purpose that God has entrusted us with is over all creation, including other humans. And we are to use our power and our authority responsibly. And we are to work actively work for others' good and flourishing as well. So, you know, in our spheres of influence, and we all have a sphere of influence... We have people that we have influence over. There are people that we are put in positions of power over. The question is, how then do we think about them? How then do we treat them? What is our mindset and attitude to the people around us, especially those with less power than we have? Do we still treat them with dignity? Do we still treat them with respect? Or do we exploit and possibly mistreat them instead of stewarding they're good. Instead of stewarding, they're flourishing. What about those with less power in our workplaces, your subordinates? Or the cleaning aunties, they come and clean the office. What about the service staff in restaurants, clinics and hospitals, in the shops? What about our domestic helpers, or our guest workers, they come to help build our nation? Do we insist on our rights without caring for their dignity? Do we hold our power over their heads? So another soul-searching question that comes up from this text today is, do we treat people as things to be used and abused? Do we treat people as things to be used and abused? You know, it can be hard to admit that we as humans, we really like to wield power. Because we like to think we're nice people. We're kind of nice people. But we really like to wield power. In our hearts, human hearts are most revealed when humans gain power and authority. You know, there's a saying that goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I disagree with that. I don't think that power corrupts. And you're like, huh? How come you don't think that power corrupts? Let me share with you what I mean. I think power amplifies what is already within our hearts. Power merely amplifies what is already within our hearts. So let me share this with story, this illustration with you. I've shared this as a, in another place before, in another sermon, but I think it's worth sharing again. So on rare occasion, you might see me driving a very fancy car around. So this car doesn't belong to me, it doesn't belong to my husband, it belongs to my husband's boss, who gives us the privilege of using his very fancy car on the months that he's away away from the country. So we know that it's a privilege. So this car is a super powerful car compared to our regular family car. When I drive our regular family car, I drive like a regular person. But when I drive the super powerful car, I drive a little bit differently. I drive a little bit faster, only a little bit, okay? I drive, I overtake just a little bit more. I drive a little bit more impatiently. In other words, I become an obnoxious driver, okay? You know, I'm still the same person, right? But when 350 horsepower, pure and raw, unadulterated power is available to me, all my inner obnoxiousness comes out. So what is the point? Power and authority is not the problem. The problem is the human heart. The problem is the human heart. And the problem is always the human heart. God has created us, designed us for worship. He has entrusted us with purpose and crowned us with glory and honour. But the problem is always the human heart. The problem is we don't live up to what we were created for and what we were entrusted to do. And left to ourselves, we are very problematic, we are selfish, we are sinful. Left to ourselves, we cannot worship God as we are created to do. Does God already know this? The answer is yes. And you see, friends, this is the great mystery of Psalm 8. God, eternal God, the glory of creation, the God who is above all the wonders of the cosmos, the great and majestic and mighty God, far above creation, would love something so broken, so frail, and so weak. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the Son of man that you care for him? What is man? that you are mindful of him, and a son of man, that you care for him. Men, we are nothing. We are broken, frail, weak, sinful, dark. But because God loves us and cares for us, we become everything to him. You know, in my life, I continued my existential search. Throughout my teenage years and even after I said the sinner's prayer, sometimes I would still wonder, is God really real? Isn't the gospel too good to be true? Maybe all this is just a crutch because I I, I need an emotional crutch. All this is just a social construct, okay? So if you have teenage children or if young adult children and they have questions, they have doubts, it's okay. It's a journey that all of us need to go through. So encourage them that God is can handle all the tough questions that they can throw at him, and of course read up on apologetics for yourself so that you are equipped to have meaningful conversations about God. But for me personally, it came together in my 20s at a church service one day. I don't even remember what the preacher preached about, so I also don't expect you to remember what I preached about later, but I felt compelled to go forward in the altar call. I felt compelled to go forward in an altar call, and there at the altar, I experienced the gospel for the first time. And it was the first time I experienced how incredible, how magnificent, how great, and how glorious God is. And there I experienced that. But at the same time, I was also deeply, fully aware of how small I was, how wretched I was, how sinful and broken I was. And for the first time in my life, I reckoned with the fact how wide the chasm between God and man. How wide, how incredibly wide and insurmountable the chasm is between God and man. It was the first time I had experienced that. But in the same time, the Spirit of God, the magnificence of God's love also reached into the depths of my soul. Reached into the depths of my soul, assuring me that God loves me. And in that moment, the chasm was bridged because God bridged the chasm because he loves me. And in that moment, I was never the same again. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? friends, the story of the gospel is undeserving men meeting the magnificent grace of God. The story of the gospel is God choosing to exchange the glory of heaven to come down on earth, to die, to be buried, and to be resurrected so that we might live and we might be restored back to fullness of worship, fullness of life, fullness of purpose with Him again. And this Is what the limitless God, with limitless love, cares for very, very limited men. And our only response, our only possible response, is worship. As the team comes up and ministers to us this song, would you begin to speak to God now and ask God, God, I've lost sight of how great you are. I've lost sight of how good you are. I really have made you far too small in my eyes. But Lord, would you return me to a place where I can see you again fully, how good and how great you are. So as the team ministers to us, this song, Who Am I? Would you ask God, to bring forth that sense of wonder and awe, that He, the majestic and great King, would love one as deep, insignificant, and undeserving as I am.
1: my Who am I that the bright and morning star Would choose to light the way From my ever-wandering heart Not because of who I am But because of what you've done Not because of what I've done But because of who you are, I am a flower quickly fading, here today and gone tomorrow, a wave tossed in the ocean, a vapor in the wind, still you hear me when I'm calling, Lord you catch me when I'm falling, Lord you tell me who I am. Who am I that the eyes that see see my sin Will look on me with love calm the sea we we'll call out through the rain and calm the storm in me not because of who I am but because of what you've done not because of what I've done but because of who Today and gone tomorrow, a wave tossed in the ocean, a neighbor in the wind. Still, you hear me when I'm calling, Lord, you catch me when.
0: identity, about significance, and if God is stirring something within your heart this day, for the first time, it's beginning to come together, and it's beginning to make a bit of sense, this is God speaking to you, and He's inviting you to a life of abundance, a life of peace, a life that makes sense in the light of who He is. So with all eyes closed, I just want to give the opportunity to anyone who wants to receive this life for the very first time. If that's you, would you raise up your hand? I would love to pray for you. For the rest of us, We grapple with the big questions of life too. And we try to answer it in all other ways, except with God. And we have drifted, we have drifted from our original purpose, we have drifted from what we were designed to do, we have drifted away from worship, we have drifted away from relationship with Him, and we have begun to chase after More and more. And we do not realize it, but it's remaking us to be less than human. So, if the desire of your heart is to say to God, God, I want to stop chasing after more and more. I want to come back to chasing after more and more of you. To come back to a place where I say, God, you are enough. The things that I'm chasing outside of you will never satisfy. If you are, if God is speaking to you, and you want to say and commit to God again, I only want to chase after you, not after the more and more. Would you raise your hand? I would love to pray for you. Father, you see all these brothers and sisters, And you look on them with love. You look on them with love. And you say, Come back to me, my children. Because in me is all sufficiency, in me is all satisfaction, in me is all that you need. So come back to me, my beloved children. And Lord, I pray for each and everyone here that Lord, you will satisfy the deepest longings of their heart. You will satisfy the deepest questions of their heart. And Father, I pray for each and everyone here that will come back to a place where they will start over with you again. And they will come back to the place of true worship. They will come back to a place of true purpose where our lives are lived not for ourselves. Our lives are lived not for the more and more, but our lives are lived for the glory of God. So Father, I pray this day, restore us back to true worship, restore us back to true purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're glad you had spent some time listening to God's Word. And we hope that the message has ministered to you. You can visit us at www.cefc.org.sg for more sermon titles God bless you in your spiritual pilgrimage ahead